Morning, church. Want to welcome you to our 845 service. Say a prayer for Cassie. Hoping everything's okay. Um, obviously, you don't expect something like that to happen in church. And, and uh, I get a little bit wobbly myself, and I'm seeing her wobbly, and I'm thinking, is it just me or is it her? And uh, just say a prayer for her, and everything would be okay. Um, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Have some good news. Um, last week, our teens were able to go to teen camp up uh, just past Sholo on the New Mexico border, and many young people made decisions. In fact, I would say most of our young people made decisions last week as they were away at camp. In fact, I see some of the young people that were at camp, and, and as far as I know, everyone made a decision or two while they were away. And then four young people made professions of faith as they were away at camp, so they uh, settled that thing of salvation, and so we're very excited about that. And not only that, last Sunday after the morning service, we had our membership class, which I think we have every couple of months or so, and we had 20-some people in the membership class, and I have a list of names I'm going to call off here in just a moment. If I say your name, if you could uh, uh, just wave your hand, uh, do me the favor of that. Mike and Judy Spiller, uh, if you wave your hands, they're right over here. Antel Orsis, um, I don't think he's here this morning. Uh, Saad and Sandra Gurgis, uh, right here. Uh, Cephalin Thomas and Jasmine Antel, over here. Uh, Stephanie and David Van Buren, uh, over here. And then uh, Rick and Minerva Lopez, uh, they're here in the, in the first service this morning. We have several others in the second service that also are going to be announced in that service. And, and then we have, after this service, if you want to hang around for just a few moments... I think we have anywhere between six and eight people professing their faith in believers' baptism. And so that's pretty exciting. We'll have our first song that we'll cut to the uh, feed for people being baptized. And then we'll, we'll get back into the song service uh, this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll begin here at verse 1 in just a little bit. The title of my message is, Our Amazing Salvation. Our Amazing Salvation. In 1997, I took my first hike to the top of Cucamonga Peak, just north of Rancho Cucamonga, where my wife and I and our firstborn lived and ministered in Southern California. It was a six-mile hike with an elevation climb of one mile. <clears throat> we would, would go up the mountain road up to a place called Ice House Flats, which we would start at about 4,000 feet, and then we would hike uh, one vertical mile over six miles uh, to about 9,000 feet uh, to the top of Cucamonga feet, Peak. Now, when we got to the top, we found a rock jutting over the precipice of the mountain, and what a sight to behold. I mean, this is literally a picture of somebody standing at the top of Cucamonga Peak. All the inland valley down below. I mean, you can see not only uh, right below Rancho Cucamonga, to the right you can see Upland, to the south of that you could see Ontario, you could see to the south of that and to the east of that Chino and Chino Hills, uh, beyond that you could see uh, 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 Corona and Miraloma and all those places, to the left you could see Fontana and to the, uh, the left of that Rialto and to the left of that San Bernardino and to the left of that and south of that Riverside and in fact... On a clear day, which the first time I climbed up or hiked up to Cucamonga Peak, you could see all the way to the Pacific Ocean and to Catalina Island. A beautiful, beautiful hike, a beautiful, beautiful sight. 
Now, from the top, you could see all of these wonderful things. Now, on the ground level, you knew that a mass of people lived in that area. Now, from about 10 miles from where I lived and ministered, there were millions of people. If you were to draw a circle 10 miles out from where I lived, there were millions of people in that 10-mile area of land. Millions and millions of people. It's amazing. Rancho Cucamonga was uh, an area of uh, six by six square miles. Just a little over uh, 36 square miles of land area. It's amazing to think that in that six by six square miles of land area, we had uh, just under 200,000 people. When I got there, it was like 125,000 people. And then it got up to, I think, 170-some thousand people in about 36-plus square miles of land area. Here in Buckeye, we have almost 700 square miles of land area. But millions of people lived in that area. Now, from, from below, you knew that. You knew that there was city all around and roads and traffic. But from the top, you had a very different vantage point. You could see clearly from 9,000 feet all of what encompassed the place in which we lived. In fact, I would hike up there sometimes just to pray. And I think of Jesus' words, the fields are white unto harvest, and the laborers are few. And I would look down below, and I would imagine that uh, city and that mass of people as my harvest field. Now, Paul here in the text of Ephesians chapter 2 is being used of God to help the Ephesians understand from a high vantage point what it means to be in the valley to be dead in their trespasses and sins, and to then be uh, fully aware of what it means uh, to be on the mountaintop, to be saved by grace through faith and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So as we look at the text this morning, we see man's dead condition. And notice how the text speaks about man's condition in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now before salvation, everyone is separated or alienated from God because of their trespasses or false steps, that's what the word means, and sins. And the word sin means to miss the mark. We are literally spiritually dead. Now, people that are dead cannot do anything. They don't move, they don't live, they don't breathe, they can't do a thing. They have no spiritual life, they are blind to the reality of the truth, they cannot think, they cannot create, they cannot produce, they may go to church, they may give in the offering box, they may do good things, they may help their fellow man, but unless they are quickened or made alive by Jesus Christ, they are spiritually dead. They might, may, might even attend a church that tells them to keep sacraments and participate in rituals and pray prayers from a book and participate in all these religious activities but that never produce spiritual life, but they are dead unless they've been made alive by Jesus Christ. Now, the spiritually dead are dominated by three forces. In fact, the text bears it out in the next couple of verses. The world the devil and his dominion, and the flesh. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past 
in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, the, <clears throat> the Bible makes it clear that there are three forces that are opposing and dominating those that are spiritually dead. <clears throat> we see, first of all, the world. The world. The Greek word for world is the Greek word cosmos. It's used 186 times in the New Testament, and almost every time except for a few, it's always speaking in a negative connotation. It speaks of the godless value system, which is ultimately hostile to truth and hostile to Christ. Now, listen how the Bible describes the world in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. It speaks of Jesus. It says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from what? From this present evil world. We don't want to be engrossed in the world and its system. We don't want the world and its system to dominate us. We want to be delivered from this present evil world, the system that is against Christ. Now, listen to the admonition in 1 John chapter 2, as John is used of God to write some instructions to these believers here uh, in verse 15. Love not the world, he says, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. In other words, if you love the world, the world system that values the things that are against Christ, you probably don't have a lot of the Father's love within you. And then the world is described. Now, it used to be Christians would describe the world as trends and fads and, and maybe entertainment. Disney is the world. Well, it didn't used to be, but uh, they used to describe things like uh, uh, the world in that way. If you, if you wore wire rim glasses back in the 70s, you were worldly. If you wore uh, tennis shoes on the platform, you were worldly. If you wore blue jeans on the platform, you were worldly. But that's not what the Bible's talking about when the Bible speaks of the world. In fact, the world is defined very clearly in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, a desire to do, you see, the world system that is hostile to Christ, the world system that is against Christ, uh, elevates the gratifying of the things that we want to do. It feeds our flesh. It feeds our carnal nature. It feeds those appetites that uh, cause us to make false steps and sin or miss the mark. And then it talks about the lust of the eyes, a desire to have. A desire to have. We live in a day where everybody wants more. We want more things. We want more money. We want more gas. <laughs> we want more and more and more. And it seems like we never have enough. And that's what the Bible is describing when it is describing the lust of the eyes. And then it says the pride of life, a desire to be, a desire to have our name recognized, a desire to have the chief position in the office, a desire to be this or that or to have fame or to have this perception on social media where everyone thinks uh, well about us because we post the best pictures and we, we post the best sayings because we want to be somebody. 
And notice what the Bible says, this system is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, the world has a value system that is against biblical truth and against Jesus Christ. Now, there's another force that dominates the spiritually dead. The Bible describes it in verse 2. It says, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children a disobedience. Now, we know this force as the devil. The devil. Let me say this. If you believe there's a God, you have to believe there's a devil. If you believe there's good, you have to believe there's evil. If you believe that there are angels that God gives his charge to that uh, at times protect us and, and help us, you have to believe that there are demons that are opposing the, the forces of good, the angelic forces, and are trying to besiege us and get us to go against God. He is called the prince and the power of the air, the realm where the spirits operate. And he literally energizes the children of disobedience. John 12 describes the devil as the prince of this world, Jesus said. The prince of this world will be cast out. Matthew chapter 9 describes uh, him as the prince of demons. The Bible says, but the Pharisee said, he casteth out devils through the prince of devils. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes him as the God of this world who blinds the minds of people to Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You see, the devil's in the business of blinding. He's wanting people to stay in the dark. He's never wanting people to be enlightened to the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, which frees man from sin and frees man from its bondage and frees man from habits and frees man from the culture and frees man from the world. He commands a great host, as mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. He uses people. He uses governments. He uses philosophies. He uses media. He uses social media that magnifies man and puts man in the place of God to take people away from God and his truth. And the prince of the power of the air has the idea of mixing just enough good with evil to keep people from the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Ephesians that he is the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. Literally, he energizes those that are spiritually dead. Just as the Holy Spirit energizes those that are spiritually alive, the devil energizes those that are spiritually dead and gives them power and the capacity to continue in their ways and their deeds. And lastly, we see another force that dominates the spiritually dead, the flesh. 
the flesh. The flesh is our sinful desires that uh, desire to be gratified at all cost. These desires dominate those that are spiritually dead and, and cause those that are spiritually dead as they gratify their appetites to have little conscience or little blush. It used to be people would be embarrassed about certain things and not so much anymore. Now, listen how the flesh is described in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, among whom also we had our conversation or our lifestyle in time past in the lust of the flesh. In other words, we were totally dominated by every desire of our flesh. And then it says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Those desires of the flesh are often uh, uh, ruminated on in the mind and cause us to think. And then once we think, we uh, get involved in action. And then the Bible says, and we're by nature the children of wrath even as others. Now, the flesh constantly wants to be gratified. It wants what it wants. And every man, woman, boy, and girl have their own struggles with their own flesh. In fact, this is how James puts it in James chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then it goes on to say, And lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You see, every man, before they are spiritually made alive, has uh, the pet sin that uh, is the thing that uh, is their kryptonite, if you will, the thing that, that brings them down, the thing that they struggle with. And even when they get saved, that same desire doesn't get eradicated. The Holy Spirit then takes up residence in the life of the believer and gives them the capacity to get victory over that lust, but it's still there. In fact, the Bible says this in Galatians chapter 5. It says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Before salvation, we are dominated by the world. We're dominated by the devil. We are dominated by the flesh. And we're destined to receive the wrath of God. But then we see the Bible introduces God's amazing mercy and love. Notice what the Bible says in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Because God has an abundance of amazing mercy, withholding a punishment we all deserve, that's what mercy is, and because God has such amazing love, volitional, sacrificial, demonstrable, the Bible says, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. Even when we were in a spiritual, lifeless condition like this, I know we can't imagine ourselves that way. I know. You said, Pastor, you should put zombies in church. Well, you know what? We're worse than that before salvation. We have no life spiritually whatsoever. Even when we were in a horrid condition dominated by the, the world, the devil, and the flesh, the Bible says that Jesus has raised us up and resurrected us and made us alive because of what he did on Calvary's cross. 
God chose to lift us out of the spiritual pit and to give us life. You know, it's easy to tell a person that has really made a mess of their life. It's easy to, to explain to them that they're lost. When I began uh, preaching on a regular basis somewhere, I looked for opportunities. I preached at a nursing home on a regular basis. In fact, I remember my first sermon at a nursing home. Can you imagine me preaching a five-minute sermon? <laughs> Let's get back to those days, Pastor. Let's get back to those days. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. These, this then is the message which we declare unto him and say unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I can go and quote the scripture, 1 John chapter 1, because I try to memorize passages that I preach in, and I can still remember that passage. And I remember preaching, and my friend got up, and after I was done for five minutes, he tried to explain what I was trying to say. <laughs> but I had an opportunity. The, there was a man in our church. His name was Frank, and he said, you know what? I go to the county jail every other weekend, and uh, we hold two Bible studies, and, and uh, I would like somebody to come with me, and, and I would like to lead music one service and have you preach if it's you. And then uh, we would change it up where I would lead music and, or you'd lead music and I'd preach or whatever, the other service. And, and what I didn't know is that he was trying to mentor me to ultimately take that over. He went with me for about uh, two or three different months. And after that, he's like, oh, okay, it's all yours. But I went into the jail. We went to the, the door of where the lady was stationed, told her what we were there for. She knew Frank. She opened up the door. There was a buzzer. There was another buzzer, there was another buzzer, there was another buzzer, and we finally got in a room. And in that room, there was uh, uh, tables around the room, and uh, there was uh, uh, one camera in the back corner looking towards the front of the room. And uh, Frank said, okay, this service, I, wanna, I want you to lead music. We brought hymnals, and I, I, I passed out the hymnals, and and led music, and, and he preached in the next service. He led music, and, and then I preached. But you know what? It was easy to, to relate to those guys that were all sinners, were dead, and we need to be made alive. Not too many of those guys were saying, you know what? I've never done anything wrong. <laughs> now, there were a few of those guys that would say, I didn't do what I'm in here for. But not too many of those guys would say, I've never done anything wrong. And so a lot of those guys uh, would get what was called jailhouse salvation, and they'd make a decision. It would look good on their, their report, uh, their file, and, uh, so that they might be able to get an early release and so on. And some of those guys genuinely got born again. And when they got out, they came to church, and their lives were changed. I can name half a dozen of those guys that we're able to minister to that are still in church today. And here's what God did. God reached into that pit. And he made them alive, and he made them new, and he resurrected them. But you know what? We may not think that we were in the pit. Well, I was never so bad, Pastor. I was a pretty good kid. I didn't tell too many lies. I did pretty much, much what my mom and dad said. I, I didn't really get into trouble in high school. I've never done anything really grievously wrong as an adult. I'm not that bad. Well, 
God and Jesus looked at us in that way, a spiritually dead condition. And the only way that any of us could have life is through Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature because of his position, his union with Christ. In Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And not only that, notice what it says in verse 6 in Ephesians. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, our place is so secure in heaven because God has given us spiritual life that we are already seated in heaven because of our union with Jesus. This is the result of God's mercy and his love. Uh, The train, if you will, has already left the station, and we are on it. We may not feel like it because we're here and now, but God's train has already left the station. Our salvation is so secure that it's sealed and done if we are in Christ Jesus, if we've received Jesus as the payment of our sins. And notice what it says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Now think about this. God, if we're saved, has already showed us his kindness and his grace. But the Bible alludes to the fact that in the ages to come, God is even going to show even more grace and kindness to us because of our position of being in Jesus Christ. It's like the Bible says in Corinthians, I have not seen nor ear heard the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. I mean, we get so fixated on this world. We get so fixated on our problems. We get so fixated on our struggles. We get so fixated on the, the battle between the lust and the, uh, of the flesh and the spirit. And, and we never look forward to what we have coming someday. We're not at the top of the mountain looking down below and seeing, hey, wait a minute, this is a pretty good vantage point. And Paul is trying to get the church to see that, wait a minute, we are really in a good spot as believers. And then we see God's amazing plan. You see, God has desired to accomplish his plan because of his unmerited favor towards those that are utterly undeserving. But God is a God of grace, so once the Holy Spirit illuminates us to the truth of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to respond in faith, and once we respond, it's as if we're receiving the greatest gift ever bestowed upon anyone, eternal life through Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and notice what it says, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, Jesus is God's gift to every one of us. Jesus. Jesus. You're not God's gift. Jesus. The Baptist church isn't God's gift. Jesus. It's not the Catholic church that's God's gift. It's not any church that's God's gift necessarily to save us. It's Jesus. 
The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he literally became our substitute. One of the theological terms for that is he was our substitutionary atonement. He was the substitutionary covering for each and every one of us. And the moment we receive what he has done for us, that's the moment we are saved. We repent and believe and receive and we become a child of God. You see, Jesus was given instead of the wrath of God because God chose to respond to us in grace. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 11. And if by grace there is no more works, otherwise grace is no more grace. In other words, if you could work for your salvation, then it wouldn't be grace. And if it was works, the Bible goes on to say, then it was no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. You can have one or the other, and only one is really going to save you, and that is grace. Listen to the words of verse 9. It says, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if salvation came by works, then the world would know a host of chest-pounding, audacious men and women who would think that they're higher on the spiritual rung than others. But the Bible makes it clear, not of works, lest any one of us boast about it. I'm going to go to heaven because I've done good deeds. I'm going to go to heaven because I've given it in the offering plate. I'm going to go to heaven because I've been to catechism. I'm going to go to heaven because I've kept the sacraments. I'm going to go to heaven for any reason that you want to choose to expound. Every one of them will make you fall short. The Bible says, not of works lest any man should boast. In Luke chapter 18, we find a person like this who's boasting about why he should be let into heaven. And it says in verse 9, He, Jesus, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, a tax collector. Pharisees were the religious elite of the day of Jesus Christ. They were the most orthodox of Jews in Judaism and and they have this other person that's pictured. He's a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated in Jesus' day. And, and the Bible says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And many people today are like the Pharisee. They think because of their own personal workmanship, because of all the things that they have done, they are saved because of everything that they do and that they have done. But the fact of the matter is, no amount of works could ever save anyone. If that were the case, if we could save ourselves by our works, then why would Jesus have had to die? Why would Jesus have had to die? And another question I want to pose to you this morning is, if we're saved by our goodness, how good is good enough? I mean, how good do you really have to be in order to save yourself? But the Bible makes it clear that salvation is through God's grace, received by faith, not of works, lest anyone could boast about it. In fact, here's how Titus explains it in Titus chapter 3. 
Uh, Paul writing to Titus, he says, For we ourselves also are sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and the love of God, our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy hath he saved us by the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified or made righteous by grace, we should be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Time and time again, the Bible makes it clear that salvation is not received by our works, nor is salvation kept by our works. It is a gift of God received by faith because of God's grace and we see one last thing and you are going to be the first church at Cracker Barrel today one last thing for Father's Day God's amazing product notice what the Bible says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them now, the word, the Greek word workmanship literally means that which has been made, a work, a making. You could literally say, and this would not be doing any injustice to the Greek or the English uh, translation, you are God's masterpiece. Think about that. You are God's masterpiece. To every young person that looks in the mirror in the morning and sees something only that they don't like, I want you to understand, you are God's masterpiece. Amen. To every adult person that looks in the mirror in the morning and sees something that you don't like, I want you to understand something. You are God's masterpiece. Amen. Now, uh, the four most famous masterpieces of the world ever produced. I'm going to show them to you this morning. The first one, the first one, <laughs> The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. It looks way better in a, uh, in a, a painting form. It does, this doesn't do it any justice here on the screen. Another one is uh, The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. We've all seen that, or at least seen the hands. Um, the next one, some of you have maybe gone to the, uh, the light Van Gogh thing here locally, Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, there's a Rodin. Um, uh, this is The Thinker by Rodin. And then the other one is The Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. Did, I, did, it, did he put it up, or did he get it? No, he didn't get it. Okay, sorry about that. Now, imagine that in salvation, God views you and I as a greater work than these. The masters of the world, the Michelangelo's, the Da Vinci's, the, the Donatello's, whoever, the masters of the world have nothing on what God has made you and I to be. Think about that. Imagine how this would change our perception if we really only believed it. We are not saved by our works, nor are we kept by our works, but if we are saved, God will continue to do his work in and through us. 
And God has foreordained that we allow him to continue his work in us on a regular basis as saved people. We are to utilize what God has given to us uh, at the moment of salvation. This is how Paul explains it to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, that she might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Salvation, once somebody has it, never keeps people the same. It always has an outgrowth. It always does a work. Now, I don't know what somebody God is doing in somebody's life as opposed to somebody else's, because I'm not with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and nor do, uh, nor do you know exactly what God is doing in somebody's life, but we do know this, that when salvation is received, it always does something to those that possess it. In fact, in Philippians, Paul is directing the church to understand that their obedience shouldn't be conditioned on whether he is or is not with them. And he writes this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, God uses him to give these words to the Philippians, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, four days a week, five days a week usually, I will find myself in the gym. I just turned 50 years of age. I want to make sure my heart's in good condition. I want to make sure that my body is still able to operate into my 60s and 70s and, and 80s if the Lord would allow that. I want to be a good steward of the body that God has given me. And so uh, I will start out my routine tomorrow morning by doing pull-ups. And I was trying to max out. I was trying to do 25 pull-ups. And the other day I got uh, 20 real good ones. I got two kind of ones. I got two more kind of eh, eh, eh ones. And then that last one just wasn't coming. I wanted to do half my age in pull-ups. And I, I, I'm just not there yet. I was able about three, four years ago, able to pump out 25, but I'm not there right now. And so I'll start out with pull-ups. I'll do some bicep exercise. I'll do a back exercise. I'll do bicep, and I'll go uh, uh, through a whole routine. Uh, my buddy Matt will be with me, and we'll work up a sweat and work up our heart. And then on Tuesday, we'll do shoulders. And on Wednesday, the day I hate, I hate, I said last week, there are a couple things I hate in life. I hate the Green Bay Packers. I hate, uh, uh, you know, I hate uh, Ohio State Buckeyes. I hate uh, a couple of other things. I hate leg day. Amen? How many of you are with me? I hate leg day. Somebody ought to take leg day out of the book. Amen? I, I think I might just have chicken legs and just leave it alone, right? But I hate leg day. So leg day's on Thursday. Friday is chest and triceps. And then Saturday, we pick it up, and sometimes it's just an arm day. It's, it's probably biceps and triceps. Yesterday was biceps and forearms. Now, what am I doing when I go to work out? I'm using what God has given me. I'm using what God has given me. I already have muscles. God created me with a body. Now, they may not be formed. They may not be able to have the capacity as somebody else might have the capacity. They may not be able to, uh, to bench 300 pounds just yet. I'm working my way there. But I'm using what I already have. And when the Bible speaks of us working out our salvation, it's not that we're working 
for our salvation. It's speaking of because we have it, we are utilizing it. We are utilizing it. And so we understand this. The only one that can quicken man from his spiritually dead condition is Jesus Christ. And we are only saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. Christ Jesus is the gift of God. Salvation is not of works, lest we boast about it. And when someone is saved, we are God's masterpiece. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to continue his work in us, God makes us an even greater work of art. God is progressively taking us through this process called sanctification, and we are not who we are going to be a year from now, Lord willing, as we continue to allow the Holy Spirit doing His work in us, but we hopefully should be more than we were yesterday. And there's nothing that can change your position as a Christian, but the fact of the matter is, God has given you your Christianity to utilize. And my, my question to you this morning is, will you allow him to do so? If you're here today and you're not saved, will you allow God to open your eyes to the message of the gospel, to illuminate you to his truth and be saved? 